Well, good evening, saints. Welcome to Monday night's Upper Room um, study through the book of Exodus. This evening we are in Exodus chapter 14, and we are looking at how the children of Israel has now been delivered from Egypt. They're on the road um, traveling and of course, last week we looked at chapter 13, where he didn't take them down the normal trade route straight to the, um, the promised land, lest they see war and they, they turn back. And so this is now the beginning of their journey. And of course, this is where God is going to deal one more time with the Egyptian army. So we're going to look at this passage and try to bring some clarity to some misnomers um, that are, are dealing with um, the journey of the children of Israel as, they, um, as the Lord takes them through the Red Sea. So let's just simply bow our hearts. Father, we are so grateful for this opportunity to look to your word, to look to your heart, to see you. And that's what we want to see. We want to understand, Lord, as we look to the children of Israel and their journey, so often it becomes just this pattern, a type of us in our journey. As you redeem us, as the enemy seeks to still pursue us and doesn't want to let us go. And, and uh, Father, there's fears that we have, and yet you would tell us, do not fear just stand still and see your glory. And that's what we want to do this evening. We want to see your glory. Not only as you have revealed it through your servant Moses, through the pages of scripture, but we want to see it as it parallels our life, what you've done. And so this evening, Lord, as we look to your word, give us ears to hear by your spirit things that you've done in our own lives, that we would catch glimpses and patterns and visible, tangible truths of what you've done in us, for us, and that we would worship. But truly, Lord, give us ears to hear what your spirit would speak to us, your church. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, chapter 14. Now the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, that they turn and camp before Pi-Hiroth, between Migdal and the sea, Opposite Baal Zephon, and you shall camp before it by the sea. Verse 3, and Pharaoh will say of the children of Israel, they are bewildered by the land. The wilderness has closed them in. Now, if you're familiar with what the, the, the Red Sea is, as he says here in verse 2, speak to the children of Israel, they turn and camp before Pahiroth, between Migdal and the sea. Now, the sea that we're looking at here, according to Exodus 13, verse 18, said, So God led the people around by way of the wilderness of the Red Sea. Again, in chapter 15, verse 4, as they have this song of Moses, it says, Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has cast into the sea. He is, his chosen captains are also drowned in the Red Sea. So we understand that where they are, um, God is completely 
aware of where they are. God has led them to this point. Keep in mind that when God calls them to be in a direction, it wasn't just a random leading that was happening. Remember what we finished up with in Exodus chapter 13 in verses 21 and verse 22, and the Lord went before them by day in the pillar of cloud to lead the way by night in the pillar of fire to give them light so as to go by day and night. And he did not take the pillar of cloud by day or the pillar of fire by night from before the people. So God is going before them. And as he goes before them, he's leading them, he's guiding them, and he's bringing them to a place where not only will they get to see God's glory, but they will no longer have to worry about Egypt, they will no longer have to worry about being pursued as God is going to deal with the entire Egyptian army. Now, where they are here says they camp before Pihiroth um, between Migdal and the sea. Pihiroth um, simply means it's the place of liberty. Um, there's an understanding that if you are familiar with the Red Sea, the Red Sea literally comes all the way um, down from uh, Yemen, and it's about 1,200 miles is where the Red Sea stretches from the, the south, and it goes a little bit to the southwest as it reaches up um, 1,200 miles. And on the top of the Red Sea, there's almost like a, um, a Y that comes up. On the western side, there's the Gulf of Suez. On the eastern side, there is the, the Gulf of um, Aqaba. And so it almost would be like if my arm was coming up and I would give you a peace sign. And so you would you'd have the Red Sea coming up and then you'd have the two gulfs. And then in the middle there, you'd have the wilderness of Paran. You'd have the, the Sinai Peninsula, of course, is, is where they are. So um, this is where they are trying to where Pharaoh's going to say they're, they're bewildered. They're, they're now, you know, in this peninsula. They are basically trapped, surrounded on three sides by water or in the V by water. They, there's nothing they can do. And if they want to come back up to the north, they, we have us and we have our armies. So what they do is the Lord speaks to Moses. He said, speak to the children of Israel that they turn and camp. So as the cloud is moving, the cloud stops. Says, "Okay, we're going to stop. We're going to camp here before this Pi-Hiroth. We're going to camp before the, this mouth of the canal." And so what happens is this: when they are there between Migdal and the sea, Migdal it simply means it's a tower, it's a watchtower. That's the, the the term of it. It's a guard tower, and then you have the sea, which will be the Red Sea. And as they do this, and it says, and then opposite Baal Zephon, and you shall see, you shall camp before it by the sea. Now, Baal Zephon is um, where it would be Mount Tehran. It would be on the western side of the, um, the finger of the Red Sea as it comes up into the Gulf of Aqaba. 
And so you have this area where all of a sudden they're told to now camp down at the southern part of this peninsula. And as they come, all of a sudden they're just facing water. And, but they're, they're called to camp between Migdal and the sea. And then it says, camp opposite Baal Zephon, you shall camp before it by the sea. So in other words, they're needing to camp out there where you have land on one side and then you have the sea on the other. And so they've now come to the point that all they're doing is they're looking at just water. It would be like um, us here in Milwaukee if God said, I want you to do a little journey and he would take us down to um, Veterans Park and we'd be looking there at Lake Michigan and we'd say, okay, now what? Where, where's the boats? Where's the ferries? What are we going to do here? And this is what they're now against. This is what they're facing. And but God just told them, I want you to go and I want you to camp there. So as they're moving in that direction, as they're there, God makes this declaration. He says in verse 3, Pharaoh will say of the children of Israel, they are bewildered by the land and the wilderness has closed them in. As we look to this, Pharaoh's going to say they really have no clue to what they're doing. And verse 4, God says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will pursue them and will gain honor over Pharaoh and over all his army. The, the Egyptians may know that I am the Lord, and they did so. God once again hardens Pharaoh's heart. And he's going to do so that Pharaoh will pursue the children of Israel. And not only will the Pharaoh pursue them, but God says, I'm going to cause this Pharaoh and he's going to bring his army in pursuit as well. And I'm going to gain honor over Pharaoh. Remember now, Pharaoh had continually asked, who is the Lord that I should listen to his voice or obey him? Who is this God? Well, he's been learning who is this God and at this point, we're going to see that the nation of Israel is about to face one of their first tests. Now, they haven't really been tested as they've gone through the plagues. Now that they're on their own, now there's going to be a test. They weren't led by the trade routes. They were led down on a southern route. And what we see is this. They are now camped by the sea. And I want to pause for just a second and kind of bring you back to chapter 13, verse 18. Because here in chapter 14, it just talks about the sea. But in chapter 13, verse 18, he actually calls it, um, God led the people around the way of the wilderness by the Red Sea. The term is Yam Sof, um, Y-A-M and S-U-P-H, Yam Suf. Um, and it's, it has two meanings. Yam is, is a large body of water, a sea, that's all it is. And then Suf is, um, has two terms. One, it is known by red, 
but it's also the term for weeds or reeds. When um, Moses' mother put the ark among the, the bulrushes, the weeds, the, the suf, um, when Jonah was in the belly of the great fish and weeds wrapped around his head, it was the suf. Um, and so it means weeds, it means reeds. And so a lot of people have now come to this mistaken understanding that they're in a very shallow area to the north and it's basically a bay of reeds. And this is where... Um, the Lord brings the children of Israel through a shallower area of the Red Sea, not a deeper area of the Red Sea. Because of that term suf, and it means weeds, it means reeds, um, it doesn't necessarily translate to it's the sea. A couple of passages I want you to be aware of before we continue our journey here through the 14th chapter is first I want you to look at 1 Kings chapter 9, verse 26. You could just jot it down, but in 1 Kings chapter 9, verse 26, it talks about this. King Solomon also built a fleet of ships at Ezion Geber, which is near Elath, on the shore of the Red Sea, Yamsuf, in the land of Edom. So we understand that this Gulf of Aqaba is the Red Sea. And Solomon actually builds at the very northern tip or towards the northern tip. He literally builds this navy that is there. Now keep in mind that from there, it goes all the way down to the Red Sea. It always goes out to the, the um, Arabian Sea. So we understand that it, it comes all the way down to Yemen. There's, there's you know, over... A thousand miles, you know, one thousand two hundred miles is where the length of it is. Now, as they they do this, we see that this Yom Suf doesn't just mean reeds; it can mean it's it's the sea. He builds a navy. Solomon doesn't build a navy in a marsh with reeds. Just trust me; he was wisest man on the earth. He's not going to do that. Another passage I want you to be aware of: two passages in the New Testament. The first is found in the book of Acts. And in the book of Acts, chapter 7, verse 36, Stephen is speaking, and Stephen is preaching to the council. And what Stephen does is this. Now understand that Stephen is now being led by the Holy Spirit to speak forth these truths to the council. And he makes this statement led by the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 7, verse 36. He, this is God, brought, or he, which is God, the, the angel Moses, brought them out after he had shown wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness 40 years. Now, here's the interesting thing. Now it's in the Greek. It's not in the Hebrew. Now, this actual term means red. It's, it's a term within the, the, the Greek in the medical that just simply has that term of being red. So we see here that Stephen, led by the Holy Spirit, 
could choose a word in the Greek, call it the, the, the reeds, the Sea of Reeds, but he doesn't. He calls it simply the Red Sea. There in the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, the great hall of faith, in verse 29, again in the Greek, we see here, it talks about by faith, and this section is for the most part about Moses, but verse 29 is different. In verse 27, it's by faith he forsook Egypt. Verse 28, by faith he kept the Passover. But in verse 29, it's by faith they. Understand, it's the entire nation Israel. By faith, they passed through the Red Sea as by dry land, whereas the Egyptians attempting to do so were drowned. Here, the Egyptian army dies. The children of Israel pass through the Red Sea. Now, it doesn't say that the sea was parted by faith. It says they actually went through it by faith. It took a step of faith to walk through this Red Sea. Now, again, the term is there in the Greek, and it means red. Now, I, I want you to think about yourself. If you were passing through a swamp that was opened up and the, the land was dry, how much faith would it take to walk through a swamp of reeds? It wouldn't take a lot of faith. See, by faith, when you have a wall on the right and a wall on the left, now it's going to take a little bit of faith. Now it's going to take a little bit of, oh my goodness, I see these walls on both sides of me. What happens if they don't continue to be a wall? I know what it was before I got here. It's going to come back eventually. So it's by faith they pass through. And again, the term is the Red Sea. So I wanted you to be aware of just how this passage is kind of a misnomer that a lot of people say because of that term suf, that it, it just simply means reeds or weeds. And what happens is they're, they're looking at one technical aspect, but they're not looking at the Bible as a whole. So when you look at the Bible as a whole, it speaks of more and more the clarity that they actually passed through the midst of the sea. Now, I sent uh, a map on the group me app for the upper room. And if you want to take a look at that, you know, just on your own, it actually shows the, a journey from Migdal, um, between Migdal and the sea, and where it shows the journey on the southern end of the Gulf of Aqaba, right there in the, um, the Red Sea. And so keep in mind that both of the fingers, both the Gulf of the Suez on the west and the Gulf of Aqaba on the, the east, they are still considered the Red Sea, as we looked at that passage there in 1 Kings chapter 9, verse 26, where Solomon, towards the northern part of the Gulf of Aqaba, still considered the Red Sea, it says he built his, his navy there. So I wanted you to be aware of just where it is that they're located. And it's not a swamp. It's not a, a little sea of reeds. It's not a tiny little crossing. It is a huge body of water and they need to there's only one way to get through it and that's God God doing the work 
And so this is why Pharaoh is saying, oh my goodness, they're bewildered by the land. Now, if it was simply a smaller bay of reeds, then why would Pharaoh have to go through the Bay of Reeds. He could simply just go around to the north, go around to the south. He could go around if it was a small bay. Um, However, if it is on the southern end, there's no way that he's going to take this trip all the way back on over the the, the top of the Gulf of Aqaba and then come back down on the eastern side. So as we look at that, now I'm going to just be very open and honest with you. There's going to be all kinds of debate to exactly where it is that they cross. And so I give you the one map not as divine. It isn't thus saith the Lord, this is the map. It just thus giveth the Lowell. Here is an idea of approximately where it could be. And it's a pretty clear um, map. And so there are people who are, you know, still trying to figure this out. The points of where these cities were and these areas are, are lost to history. So we do know that he crossed the Red Sea. Where exactly they crossed, God himself knows. He led them to this spot. And so don't be dogmatic. You can show people the map. You can say, here's a a pretty good understanding of what it is. Um, But keep in mind that the map is not divine, However, the word of God is. And when the word of God in you know, Exodus chapter 14, verse 22 says, the children of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground and the waters were a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. When you see there um, in verse 29 of Exodus 14, the children of Israel had walked on dry land in the midst of the sea, and the waters were a wall to them on the right hand and on the left. When he says it's a wall, it's a wall. Um, remember when the, in Joshua 6, when the nation of Israel was walking around the walls of Jericho? Same term. So I don't know if Jericho had just little tiny you know, walls where you could step on or step over, but this was a wall. Um, a mound of water so high that it caused the children of Israel to have to take a step of faith to pass through this water lest it come down and they had to have at least an aspect of fear. Now there was fear on them for what was going to happen to the Egyptian army but also they had to take a step of faith as in other words going forward passing through the Red Sea. So I wanted to give you that clarity as far as this is the sea that they're passing. It isn't a little bay. It isn't a, a little you know, area of reeds or weeds. It's literally the Red Sea. I do believe that it is, um, you can look at the, the gulfs, and I do believe it's the Gulf of Aqaba. Um, that, that's the, the cleaner of the translations. Um, as they find themselves there in the wilderness. And of course, here in verse 3, the Pharaoh says, the children of Israel, they are bewildered by the land. The wilderness has closed them in. So if you've got water on all sides, Pharaoh on the northern side, they're now on the southern end of the, the wilderness of Paran, the, the Sinai Peninsula. Then you, you realize, oh, this is, this is where we could see 
Pharaoh really saying the people are confused. Now in verse 4. I will then harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will pursue them. I will gain honor over Pharaoh and over all his army that the Egyptians may know that I am the Lord. And they did so. So he hardens Pharaoh's heart. He wants them to pursue them. And so verse 5, it kind of gives you a little bit idea of what God did or, or the, the process of how that happened. Now it was told the king of Egypt that the people had fled. Israel is now left. And the heart of Pharaoh and his servants was turned against the people. And they said, why have we done this? that we have let Israel go from serving us. So they're asking this question, why did we let them go? What in the world were we thinking when we let them go? Now I'm thinking there's 10 really good reasons why they let them go. First is the water being turned to blood. The, the last is the death of the firstborn. And, you know, and the, the eight other plagues that are there in the midst, I can think of really 10 really, really good reasons why they let them go, especially the last. And so when they ask this question, why have we done this? It's really amazing what kind of short-term memory loss that they had to what devastation came upon them to why they say, now just go. And as they said, listen, we even want to give you our gold and our silver and our garments and our jewels. We want you to take them too, lest more death happens to us. Please just leave. And yet they ask the question in verse 5, why have we done this, that we've let Israel go from serving us? They said, we've lost an entire workforce. What did we do? Why did we allow them to go? So verse 6, we see what happens. So he, that is the Pharaoh, made ready his chariot and took his people with him. He takes his army and I don't know if he takes men along with the army. What is unique is this. In the histories of ancient writers, there's a writer by the name of Josephus. And as he puts an account on the pursuit of the children of Israel by Pharaoh and his army. Now I want to read a little bit further so that you can kind of see what was happening. In verse 6, it begins, he made ready his chariot, took his people with him. Also, he took 600 choice chariots and all the chariots of Egypt with captains over every one of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the children of Israel. And the children of Israel went out with boldness. Verse 9, so the Egyptians pursued them all the horses and chariots of Pharaoh, his horsemen and his army, and he overtook them camping by the sea beside Pihiroth before Baal Zephon. So as we note here, he takes the chariots, he takes horsemen, and he takes his army. 
Now, I talked about Josephus, and what Josephus makes a declaration is this. Josephus said that what Pharaoh did with his chariots, we understand he took 600 choice chariots. These were the, um, the Marines, if you will. They, they, they were the, the, the primary fighting force. And then he took other chariots. Um, so he didn't just take 600 choice chariots. He says, and all the chariots. So he took the choice ones and he took the rest of them. And so what Josephus declares is this, that there were 50,000 horsemen and chariots with horses combined. That's incredible. 50,000 we know 600 chariots, choice chariots. Then he had other chariots, and then he had just the horsemen themselves. And so this is what we saw as, as he said in verse 9, so the Egyptians pursued them, all the horses and chariots of Pharaoh, then his horsemen, the second, and then his army. So Josephus says 50,000 horsemen, and chariots combined. And then Josephus said that Pharaoh had approximately 200,000 infantry in his army. So Israel is now being pursued by, as we understand this, about 250,000 warriors. This is army. And, and so understand what's happening. He has 250,000 that's pursuing 200 infantry, 50,000 with horsemen and chariots. And as we noted earlier, that in Exodus chapter 12, verse 37, let me just read that to you one more time. It makes this declaration. The children of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot, besides children. So you have women and children and, and about 600,000 men. Now, to be honest with you, these guys were not warriors. They were slaves. That's what they were. They weren't trained to be an army, and so you have this army now pursuing them, and this is what happened. So when the children of Israel would see an army of approximately 200,000 infantrymen, 50,000 horses and chariots, I could see why they would be a little bit nervous. Why? Because you have 600,000 men who aren't warriors and you have to protect your women, you have to protect your children. What's going to be going on here? But this is what we see. We see how Pharaoh now takes his entire army and begins to pursue now the nation of Israel. Verse 10 makes this declaration. And when Pharaoh drew near, the children of Israel lifted their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians marched after them, so they were very afraid. And the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. Then they said to Moses, Because there were no graves in Egypt, have you taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you so dealt with us to bring us up out of Egypt? Is this not the word that we told you in Egypt, saying, Let us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians 
that we should then that we should die in the wilderness. And so verse 13, Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. The Egyptians whom you see today, you shall see again no more forever. The Lord will fight for you, and you shall hold your peace. The children of Israel see this, and they're very afraid. And over and over in the scripture, I don't know, I didn't make the count, but there are a lot of places in the scripture where God says, do not be afraid, do not be afraid, do not be afraid, do not be afraid. And it's, uh, it's, it's almost where God realizes that when all these things happen, there's just terror, there, there's, there's fear. And his word to us is always, you do not have to be afraid. I want to share with you one portion of that and it's found in Matthew chapter 14. I'm going to start reading in verse 25. I'm going to read down to verse 33. But it says this, Now in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went to them walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It's a ghost! And they cried out for fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Be of good cheer. It is I. Do not be afraid. And so... Peter answered and said, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. So he said, come, and Peter had, when Peter came down from the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when Jesus saw, when he, Peter, saw that the wind was boisterous, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately, Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him and said to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? I wanted to read on to verse 31 at this point because we see here that there is a sense of being afraid. Peter now says, if it's you, Lord, bid me to come. And he comes. He now begins to look at the the waves and he loses the focal point of his peace. Jesus catches him, says, Oh, you little faith, why did you doubt? Verse 32, when they got in the boat, the wind ceased. And those who were in the boat came and worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. That's an amazing thing, is is that here, they're, they're looking at the Lord, and at first they're troubled, and they're afraid, and he just simply says, You don't have to be afraid. It's me. I'm here. Don't be afraid. Peter takes that moment and says, if, you, if, you, if it's you, then do <laughs> allow me to do what you're doing. Allow me to imitate you. And he says, okay, come on, let's do this. Peter takes his eyes off the Lord. He looks at the wind, the waves, they're boisterous. They're, they're, they're turning up. And, and by taking his eyes off the Lord, he looks at the wind and the waves and he begins to sink. He, of course, he cries out, Lord, save me. And of course, Jesus does. And it's interesting that God simply says, why, why, did you, why did you doubt? Why did you take your eyes off of me? But this is what happens. The nation of Israel is now looking at Pharaoh. They're looking at his army. They're not looking at the pillar. They're not looking at, at God, that angel, the Lord that is there with them. They're looking at the Egyptian army. And once they took their eyes off of that, that aspect of God, of course, Fear begins to follow. And that happens a lot where keep in mind that as 
non-believers were, were there, were caught up, and were part of just Satan and his minions as far as being in opposition to God. Jesus said, if you're not for me, you're against me. So there is no neutral ground. And so initially we're enemies of God and we're part of just Satan's opposition. Now, when God illuminates our mind and our heart and he gives us that aspect of revealing Jesus Christ, his death on the cross, payment for our sins, we receive that finished work. We believe and we ask Jesus Christ to come into our heart. He then comes and gives us the Holy Spirit as that surety. We talked about it on Sunday, that regeneration. When you have that, now you're God's. And if you've ever noticed that so often as a new believer, there's just this zeal that we have, but make no mistake, Satan doesn't say, oh, well, I lost you. That's not what he's going to do. He's going to do everything he can to try to get you back to him. And as you're starting to go with God, as you're starting to look to God, Satan is going to come and and there's going to be attacks that come and attacks that are going to blindside you and attacks that when you take your eyes off the Lord, these attacks are going to be enough to cause us to be afraid, to cause us to, um, to stumble. And this is what's happening. When, verse 10, Pharaoh drew near, the children of Israel lift their eyes, behold, the Egyptians marched after them. So they were very afraid. Not just afraid, they were very afraid. They're seeing this army come at them. They aren't soldiers. And when you see 50,000 horsemen and chariots, it's a little daunting. And so initially now, the first thing they do is they, they say to Moses, because there were no graves in Egypt, have you taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you so dealt with us to bring us out of Egypt? Now, this is an error on the part of the Israelites. When they say at the end of verse 11, why... Um, Because there were no graves in Egypt, have you taken us away to die in the wilderness? Moses didn't take them away. What was happening? Well, remember in chapter 13, verse 21 and 22, we see here the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, so as to go by day and night, and he did not take the pillar of cloud by day, or the pillar of fire by night from before the people. Moses did not lead them. The pillar led them. They were all following the pillar. It wasn't like the pillar went you know, north you know, to the Philistines, and Moses said, ah, just let the pillar go its way. We're going to go another way. He didn't choose a path outside of God. He was being led by the Lord. And a lot of times what God will do is he'll lead us down a path and this path is going to be a path that we may not fully understand. Keep in mind that God's ways are not our ways, but what he is going to do is he's going to show us his glory. He's going to show us his power. He's going to show us that if you're at a point where you can do nothing but depend on me. So keep in mind that if they were on that path, that route that would take them, you know, right up there to 
um, the land of the Philistines. Remember verse 17 of Exodus 13, it came to pass when Pharaoh had let the people go, that God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, though it was near. God says, no, we, we have another work to do. Um, what I need to do is this. I'm going to not let you go directly into war one way or have Pharaoh pursue you from behind. You're not going to have the front and back where you have to worry about. I'm going to deal with Pharaoh now, and then you're going to see my power as I move. But it's interesting how so often we have this area where God brings us to a point, and God says, watch and see what I do. But when we take our eyes off the Lord, all of a sudden, we're not going to be looking to see what he does, nor are we going to be believing the, the promises that God will be declaring. And the, the, the promise is this. When in verse 11 and 12, they said to Moses, because there are no graves in Egypt, have you taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you so dealt with us to bring us up out of Egypt? Is this not the word we told you in Egypt saying, let us alone that we may serve the Egyptians for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians that we should die in the wilderness. They were saying, you know, we have it pretty good in, in Egypt. Now, what they didn't realize is, you know, so often we look to, this area that God wants us to walk by faith, and, and he says, it's, it's going to be a, a walk. It's not more than you can bear. Trust me. I'm going to lead you. I'm going to guide you. I'm going to show you my power. I'm going to show you who I am. But they're always looking back to this area saying, we're in this spot. Why are we in this spot? The, the real question is, is, do you really care? Is God caring? Are we going to die here? There is a portion of scripture there in the gospel of Mark. I want to read it to you. Mark chapter 4, verse 38. As, as we see going into this, what happens is it talks about the, the, sea, the sea being stilled. But what happens is verse 37, a great windstorm arose and the waves beat into the boat so that it was already filling. But he was in the stern, Jesus, asleep on a pillow. And they woke him and they said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Then he arose, he rebuked the wind and, the, and said to the sea, Peace be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. It's interesting that they're asking God, Don't you care that we're perishing? Now, of course, they're, they're talking to God who came to earth in the flesh to go to the cross, to die for their sins, that they could have eternity with God. And they're asking him, don't you care that we're perishing? Of course he cares that they're perishing. Now, as we look to this here, the children of Israel, their eyes are off the Lord, and they're looking back to Egypt wasn't so bad. Egypt was an okay place. Now, they're forgetting what? That, that Egypt was saying that all of the firstborn were going to be cast into the Nile. All the firstborn males were going to be killed through the, the midwives. And, and they were there with great rigor. Remember, when they were crying out in the beginning, God heard their cries. It wasn't a cry to him, but there were cries. And it wasn't cries of joy. It was cries of desperation. And so as they're looking to this, they now begin to speak bad to Moses and they begin to speak bad in a sense to God. There's a passage you should be aware of. Jot this down. It's found in Psalm 106. What I'm going to read is this. 
I'm going to start reading in verse 7. I'm going to read through verse 12. But it says this in Psalm 106. Well, let's move back into verse 6. We have sinned with our fathers. In other words, we have now sinned with our fathers. They have sinned. We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedly. Our fathers in Egypt did not understand your wonders. They didn't understand what you were going to do. They didn't understand how you did it. And it says this. Verse 7, our fathers in Egypt did not understand your wonders. They did not remember the multitude of your mercies, but rebelled by the sea, the Red Sea, the Yamsuf. Nevertheless, he saved them for his name's sake. So they're rebelling already, saying, let's go back to Egypt. Let's just give ourselves over to Egypt. Say, we'll come back. We'll be your slaves. But this is what they rebelled by the Red Sea. Nevertheless, verse 8, he saved them for his name's sake, that he might make his name, his mighty power known. He rebuked the Red Sea also, and it dried up. So he led them through the depths as through the wilderness. He saved them from the hand of him who hated them. He redeemed them from the hand of the enemy. Now, notice what God through the Spirit, says about Egypt. They hated him. They were enemies. And they go, let's go back. It was nice there. Verse 11, the waters covered their enemies. There was not one of them left. And then they believed his words, and they sang his praise. Amazingly, we're going to see that next week as we get into Exodus chapter 15. And what we're seeing is this. Initially, right now, what's happening is, is they're um, coming to this point where they are, are looking at what is happening here, and they're complaining. They're groaning. They're, they're saying, why are we here? Let's go back to Egypt. Well, once they see what God has done, they move from this place of complaining and groaning and bad-mouthing Moses, in a sense, bad-mouthing God along with it, to a place of glorifying. Oh, now everything's amazing. Let's worship God because now we're on the other end of it. And so in Exodus chapter 15, verse you know, we see here in, in verse 10, there's this groaning going on. Exodus chapter 15, there's this glorifying going on. And then as we go a little bit further, what happens in the very next chapter in Exodus 16, then we or at the end of chapter 15, we begin to see that there's this grumbling that begins to go on. And, and so the children of Israel go through these gamuts of emotion. Well, right now they're terrified seeing the Egyptian army. They're thinking maybe it's better for us just to simply give ourselves back to them. Let's go serve the Egyptians. And so they, they make this statement. They said, didn't we tell you that? There in verse 12, here in Exodus 14, didn't we tell you in Egypt saying, let us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? And so... At that point, when the Egyptians made them serve with greater rigor, they said, oh, guys, just leave us alone. It's horrible. Now we have more work to do. He said it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians that we should die. Now, keep in mind, they only see two options, serving the Egyptians and dying. They're not saying, let's serve God. They're not seeing that as a third option. And it's interesting that we limit ourselves with limited knowledge, a finite knowledge, and not really going with 
the, the understanding of God is infinite. He can do whatever he wants to do, however he wants to do it, and we're going to trust him to do with what he does, and we're going to follow his leading. And so at this point now, they said it's better for us to serve the Egyptians that we should die in the wilderness. So Moses now says to the people, do not be afraid. And I love it. Simply, don't be afraid. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall see again no more forever. The Lord will fight for you, and you shall hold your peace. Moses does something amazing. He looks at the people, and he simply says, listen, you don't have to be afraid. And I love what Moses does is he's, he's looking to the fear of the people. And as a leader, says, you don't have to be afraid. Stand still. Don't, don't run around all crazy. Don't try to say, what do I need to do to get out of this? What, how do we surrender to the Egyptians? Just, just wait and watch what God is going to do. And you may not quite understand exactly, but he says, I want you to stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. Wait on God and look to what his salvation is. And I think it's important that so often we look to the reality of God's salvation. We who are Christians, we know the scriptures. But every religion of man outside of Christianity, every religion of man has a way of salvation. And this is put on a scale, do more good than bad. Isn't that the key? If you do enough works, you've now managed to get in to go to heaven. If you do enough good deeds. And it's almost as if we weigh ourselves out on a scale where we think, okay, I'm going to just put on all the, the good that I remember. I'm not going to put on all the bad that I forgot. And what we forget is if there's one sin, just one sin, that the wages of sin is death. And as we talked about it there on Sunday, we made a note that all it took was one sin. Adam ate of the tree and then death. That was it. Now, he didn't die immediately, but he was no longer in intimacy with God. And we understand that, that through that, where that passage in Romans chapter 5, verse 14, says that from, you know, Adam to Moses, people died. Now, now keep in mind that after Moses was the law, and people could then transgress the law, but between Adam and Moses, there really wasn't a law other than one law, don't eat of the tree of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, and only Adam did that sin. No one else after Adam ate of the tree. Why? Because there was that cherubim there with the flaming sword. But yet they all died because they were what? Adam was the headship. They were in that, that. Adam was the one who was the head of the human race. Through him, every man took on that sin nature. Every man would die. And I think it's important that we understand the depravity of sin. We understand that the wages of sin is death, separation from God. The world religion says you can work yourself back from death. You can't. You can't work yourself back. Death is death. But what we see is this. God made a salvation. God says, I'm going to come to earth as a man. I'm going to pay the penalty for your sin. 
I will take your sin, place it upon me. I will give you my righteousness. I'll do this swap with you. And then I'm going to go to the cross and I will pay that price. The salvation of the Lord is something we don't normally think of. We don't think, we say, oh, wow, this is an easy little thing. But who would have thought, who would have thought God would come to earth, become a man, pay the price for us? See, that's not in any man's religion that God himself would take the penalty. It is in Christianity. It is, of course, God. He's the one who does it. Men always have a substandard religion. It's a way of glorifying man. Look at what I've done. I've done enough now to enter into heaven. I now can come and be right with God. Pat myself on the back. All glory to me because I've now accomplished what I needed to do. But I love how he says, don't be afraid. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. Moses knew that God was going to do a work. He didn't understand how he was going to do work, but he knew he was going to do a work. For the Egyptians whom you see, you'll see no more first. So he has this statement of faith that he makes towards the nation of Israel. The Lord will fight for you and you shall hold your peace. Now, it's unique here because in verse 15, the Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? He's not saying, why do the children of Israel cry to me? He says, why do you cry to me? Something unique. There's something that was missing between verse 14 and 15 because Moses is very bold before the children of Israel. And somewhere between verse 14 and God speaking to him in verse 15, Moses is off to the side and says, God, what are we going to do? <laughs> I told the people you were going to do something. I trust you're going to do something. And, and the Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the children of Israel, go forward. He said, Tell them, move on. You, you, you see where I'm at. He said, but lift up your rod, stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. And the children of Israel shall go on dry land in the midst of the sea. Now, I know what Moses is thinking. He was there saying, God's going to do a work. God's going to save us. And of course, Moses was thinking, well, really, all I should do is just raise up my rod in the hand and split the waters and let's walk through. <laughs> Moses is like, that is what you're going to do? There's no way his mind could comprehend that aspect of salvation. Is he going to say, you're going to bring the angel of death in one more time? Do we sacrifice more lambs? What's going to happen? And God says, no, go forward. I want you to walk a path of faith. And it's absolutely amazing how God talks to Moses. He says, why do you cry to me? So, you know, I, I think it's true. And I, I've done this before where it's easy for me to preach something, to declare something. And when I'm in it myself, I'm not quite as bold. In other words, I can tell people, hey, listen, all things work together for good. And, and we do. People say that until something happens to me. And then people come and say, oh, don't worry, Pastor. Well, all things work together. Don't, don't, I don't want to hear that right now. It's not working together right now. It's not in my timeline right now. I want it good now. I don't want it to be good down the road. And, and we have a way of saying it to one person. It's easy to speak forth the words of faith, but it's harder to, what, internalize and walk those words of faith. So Moses speaks to the people, tells them, don't be afraid, stand still, see the salvation, which the Lord is going to accomplish. 
You're not going to see the Egyptians anymore. God is going to fight for you. You hold your peace. Somewhere between 14 and 15, he's crying out to the Lord. So the Lord said to Moses, why do you cry out? Tell the children of Israel, go forward. Lift up your rod. Stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. And the children of Israel shall go on dry ground through the midst of the sea. And indeed, it will happen when the hearts of the Egyptians, oh, indeed, and I indeed will harden the hearts of the Egyptians, and they shall follow them. So I will gain honor over Pharaoh, over his army, over his chariots and his horsemen. And then the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gained honor for myself over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. And now we begin to see what, what God does. He says, okay, you're going to cross, and then I'm going to cause the Egyptians to follow you, and I'm going to gain honor. And, and, you know, I don't think Moses would be thinking, that's exactly what I was thinking. You know, we're, we're, we're so good. Great minds think alike, Lord. He's not. He's, she's, she's trying to figure out what in the world do we do. We got the Egyptians bearing down on us. I got the, the sea right here. What do I do? God says, just keep walking forward. And I think it's, it's, it's important to realize that when you do believe that there are roadblocks to walking forward with God, um, it's important. Look to his word. Look to his promises. And then walk forward. Just, just don't, don't think that a wall is going to be an obstacle. Don't think that a sea is going to be an obstacle. Don't think that anything is going to be an obstacle because it's God who fights. It's God who brings this path. It's God who brings the salvation. Stand still and see his glory. Well, at this point, we see in verse 19, the angel of God went before the camp of Israel, moved and went behind them. The angel of God who went before the camp of Israel moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud went from before them and stood behind them. At this point, we're seeing that if the children of Israel are camped right there on the shore, if the angel Lord in the pillar, in the fire, would have started moving into the sea, it was before them. And so when God says, go forward, Here's the pillar. And God's like, uh, Moses like, <laughs> that's water there. Yeah, that's just water. It's only water. Just, just cross. But what happens is this, is the, the pillar begins to go around behind them. So the angel of God who went before the camp of Israel moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud went from before them and stood behind them. So it came between the camp of the Egyptians and the camp of Israel. Thus it was a cloud and darkness to the one, and it gave light by night to the other, so that one did not come near the other all that night. To one, it's so uh, amazing that God says, to one, I'm going to be a light. To the other, I'm going to be darkness. To one, I'm going to illuminate a path that shows you what it is. To another, I'm going to blind him. And I think it's important to recognize that this is really what God often does, is that here, um, we, we see that there's a, a portion of scripture, I want to read it to you, um, 
in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, in dealing with the, the light and the darkness, it makes this statement. The natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. So in other words, you have those that are in the light, those who are in the darkness, and natural man can't perceive the things of the Lord. Don't God keeps them in the dark. They love darkness because their deeds are evil. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 16, there's this other beautiful statement where it talks about, verse 15, for we are the fragrance, we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one we are the aroma of death, leading to death, the darkness, and to other we are the aroma of life, leading to life, and who is sufficient for these things. We're basically this fragrance. To one side, there's light and there's life. To another side, there's darkness and there's death. And this is what God begins to do. They are not seeing the light. The nation of Israel is seeing the light. And so we recognize now verse 20 of Exodus 14. So it came, this is the pillar of cloud. It came between the camp of the Egyptians and the camp of Israel. Thus it was a cloud of darkness to the one, and it gave light to by night to the other, so that one did not come near the other all that night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord caused the sea to go back by a strong east wind all that night. And he made the sea into dry land, and the waters were divided." I want to read you a portion of scripture real quick here. It's found in Isaiah chapter 63. I want to read verses 12 and 13 to you. It said, Who led them by the right hand of Moses with his glorious arm, dividing the waters before them to make for himself an everlasting name, who led them through the deep as a horse in the wilderness that they might not stumble. God says, I'm going to be the one. This is my hand that does this. So verse 22, so the children of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground. And the waters were a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The waters were truly, truly a wall. And as we Look to the scripture. I want to give you just a couple of verses. The first we, we kind of already looked at in Psalm 106, verse 9. It says, He rebuked the Red Sea also and dried it up. So he led them through the depths as through the wilderness. In Psalm 106, verse 22, wondrous works in the land of Ham, awesome things by the Red Sea. We see how God moved this, how God um, did the work on this. Um, one other passage I want you to be aware of is Psalm 78, verse 53. It, it declares this, just this beautiful statement, and he led them on safely so that they did not fear, but the sea overwhelmed their enemies. And so now we see that reality there of, of you know, Hebrews where by faith they went through the Red Sea. He leads, he leads them safely. And, and I, I love the heart of that. So 
as we begin to see what God does is he now opens the sea and the children of Israel who are at night seeing the wind coming, seeing the sea begin to part and seeing now God allow the, the, the mud to be hardened. And so he literally is making dry land. And so in verse 21 again, Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. The Lord caused the sea to go back by a strong east wind all that night. He made the sea into dry land and the waters were divided. So the children of Israel went into the midst of the sea on the dry ground and the waters were a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. So not little walls, not, not a border, not you know little water here. There were a wall to them. And the Egyptians pursued and went after them into the midst of the sea. And all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. So as they now journey through, now the Egyptians begin to pursue them. As the Egyptians begin to pursue them, what we note here is that they believe that we have the, the same walk the same blessings, the same freedom that Christians do. And that is not true, that although God says, I'm going to bless my children, the blessings don't have to go over to the nation of Egypt. A portion of scripture I want you to read or at least be aware of, it's found in Psalm 77. I want to read verses 16 through 20. And what Psalm 77 is a little bit unique And what it is is this. It actually shows what the Egyptian army experienced when they followed Israel through the sea. And this is what Psalm 77 begins. It begins in Psalm 77, verse 16. The waters saw you, O God. The waters saw you. They were afraid. The depths also trembled. Now, notice what the Egyptians see. The clouds poured out water. The skies sent out a sound. Your arrows also flashed about. The voice of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Lightnings lit up the world. The earth trembled and shook. So at the end of verse 18, the earth trembled and shook. Your way was in the sea, your path in the great waters, and your footsteps were not known. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. We see this. As the Egyptian army is following, what is taking place is this. The cloud itself is coming behind the nation of Israel. (coughs) As the cloud is moving, now all of a sudden that that pillar of, of fire and that cloud is allowing Israel to go forward Um, and illuminate their path. It's also now moving so that the Egyptian army can move forward. Now, the Egyptian army isn't going to go through the cloud. They're prevented by it. But as the cloud moves, they think we can do this too. But on the other side of that cloud, there's all kinds of of stuff happening. The thunders, the lightnings, the the, the pouring of of water, and then, of course, the breaking up of of the, the wall as the children of Israel make it through. So, Coming back to verse 23, the Egyptians pursued and went after them in the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. Now it came to pass in the morning watch that the Lord looked down upon the armies 
the army of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire and cloud, and he troubled the army of the Egyptians. So when you see the cloud on the one side, God is now looking through, and he says, a little further, Egypt, a little further, Egypt, a little further. And when they're at that right point, then he begins to trouble the army of the Egyptians. It says in verse 25, he took off their chariot wheels, so he drove them with difficulty. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from the face of Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Now, his army is, is, is in tune. Let's get out of here. However, the problem being is they can't go fast because he's now making the way with difficult. And so he takes off their wheels. And so they say, let's flee. And the Lord now, verse 26, said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea, the waters may come back on the Egyptians, on their chariots, and on their horsemen. So upon the army, upon the Egyptians, and upon the horsemen. And so keep in mind, as God begins to keep the water tumbling and tumbling and tumbling, it's not just the water coming back and they can flow to the top or some can swim. He literally creates this water that just keeps coming and coming and keeps them under the water. None of them live. So, verse 27, Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and when the morning appeared, this is now the, the sun is out, they're able now to look back as the, the cloud moves you know, beyond them. And so, when the morning appeared, the sea returned to its full depth. While the Egyptians were fleeing into it, so the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea, and the waters returned and covered the chariots, the horsemen, all the army of Pharaoh that came into the sea after them, and not so much as one of them remained. God does an incredible victory. Now, how many arrows did Israel shoot? How many rocks did Israel throw? What did, arrow do? What did Israel do? They walked on dry ground. They just simply walked the path that God had. God was the one who gave them victory. God was the one who said, stand still and see my salvation. And I think it's important that when it comes to our salvation, what do we do? What great act do we do in our salvation? Do we conquer armies? Do we conquer Satan? No, we don't. What do we do? We walk by faith. That's what we do with our salvation. We simply walk by faith. God delivers, we walk by faith. And unless people think that there's some great thing that we do, keep in mind that we are simply doomed. If you want to know how doomed we are, think about this. What if we were sitting there, you know, on the, 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 the shoreline there we talked about in like Veterans Park over there in Milwaukee by... Lake Michigan, and we had, you know, um, 50,000 tanks coming, 200,000 infantrymen. Do you really think that we're going to fight our way through it? <laughs> you know, um, no, we're not. We're simply doomed. And that's what they knew. They were afraid. There was nothing they could do. They were just dead men. That's our salvation. There's, there's no great miracle that we're going to do. We're simply dead men. But the children of Israel had walked on dry land, verse 29, in the midst of the sea. And the waters were a wall them on their right hand and on their left. And the Lord saved Israel that day out of the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. 
Now, as their bodies begin to, to wash up on the waves that are coming in from the Red Sea, keep in mind that there's this eastern wind that had been blowing, the eastern wind I still believe is, is still blowing, so he's washing the Egyptian army up on the other side of the, the passage they're on. They're, it's, they're washing the Egyptians on the eastern side of the Gulf of Aqaba. And so we see here that this is what God does. God brings about a great salvation. God brings about the end of their enemy. And of course, we understand God's going to do the same thing with Satan. <laughs> Satan is going to just be, be put away. He's never going to bother anyone again. But until then, there, there's a work that we still need to not fear him, but not think that we're going to beat him up or anything, as some Christians think they can. But we're going to stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. We're going to watch God work. So verse 31, Israel saw the great work which the Lord had done in Egypt. So the people feared the Lord and believed the Lord and his servant Moses. It's amazing how when people see the works that all of a sudden like, oh, I saw the wonder. Let's worship God. <laughs> um, he's worthy of the worship even before we see the wonders. Two passages to jot down. The first is found in the Gospel of John, chapter 2, verse 11. It said, you know, through that where he changes the water to wine, it says this is the beginning of the signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. In John chapter 14, verse 11, it makes this statement. Jesus says, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. Now, as we went through the Gospel of Matthew, we saw that Jesus did these works, and the people said, wow, this has to be the Messiah. And they go, oh, no, he cast out demons by Beelzebub. <laughs> it's, not, it's not God who's doing it. It's the enemy who's doing it. And it's amazing that when we see the works, and, and it's so often that we have to wait for God to actually show us the path that he's in before we begin to worship him as God. Rather than trusting God, you have a path, and this is what you have us on. I'm going to trust you in this path. I'm going to walk in this path. I'm going to worship you as we go through this. And this is the heart of God. And, and, and keep in mind that God doesn't fault Israel for this. He doesn't say Israel saw the great works what God had done, and God said, oh, now you believe. He doesn't fault them. And so keep in mind that he does the works. We, we do see it, and there's this rejoicing because we actually see that tangible aspect of God moving. But understand that if he doesn't move according to the way that we desire, is he no longer good? And of course, that answer we covered before, of course he's good. But I love the, the fact that here, Israel sees the great work, verse 31, the Lord had done in Egypt. So the people feared the Lord and believed the Lord and his servant Moses. So all of a sudden, they're about to shift now from this, this point of, of groaning. Oh my goodness, why did you bring us out here just to die? We were better off in Egypt. And now all of a sudden, Egypt is dead. Like, oh, let's glorify God. And they're going to glorify him through chapter 15. 
And then at the end of 15, they're going to move from glorifying to grumbling one more time. Oh, we got no water. We're going to die. It's amazing how quickly we forget what God is doing. God had showed Israel how he would defeat Egypt through the 10 plagues. God was victorious and Israel did nothing but listen to God. And now again, they do nothing but listen to God and they don't dig pits. They don't make traps. They just walk through on dry land. God is the one who's doing all the work. And understand that the rest of their journey, they're going to learn that same truth. God, you're the one who's going to do the work. You're the one who's going to do the work. I'm going to look to you. I want to trust in you. And I want to worship you. May we grow to learn to do that in our own walks. Father, we are so grateful for this word. We're grateful so that you teach us what it is that we need to learn of our salvation. It is a great salvation. Lord, there is nothing that we could have done. We were dead in trespass and sin. You, you would make us alive. You, Jesus, would do the most amazing thing, that you would do the impossible. God, you would come to the earth. You would do that which is so unexpected. And you could simply say, we just have to believe in what you've done. No works involved. Just walking by faith. Walking the path that you have for us. As, as incredible as it would be, who would have thunk it, Lord, that you, you would be the lamb. You would come to earth as a servant. You would take our sin upon yourself. You would pay for it in full. It would simply be recipients of your work. How amazing is your salvation. We're so grateful that we could just stand still and see it, do nothing and, and receive it. But then you're going to have us journey by faith and teach us what that means as we continue our journey, Lord, through the book of Exodus. Knit our hearts to you, Lord. Truly knit our hearts to you, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.